Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity titled SARS-CoV-2 Variants is brought to you by AKH Incorporated, advancing knowledge in healthcare and American Thoracic Society and supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to Rapidly Changing COVID-19 the role of monoclonal antibodies. I'm delighted you could join this program. Um, I'm Dr. Paul Auerter. I'm the clinical director for the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Sherilyn and Ken Fisher Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. This CME program uh, will focus upon uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants, and there are two other segments that you can uh, also uh, see, but the learning objectives in this segment will identify uh, the variants that are currently causing issues that uh, result in hospitalization and severe uh, disease, such as uh, ARDS and then differentiate uh, the variants with regards to morbidity, mortality, susceptibility, and also, especially in another segment, uh, potential treatments uh, that will be uh, important for some of our patients. Now, here's the agenda we'll be focusing on over the next uh, few minutes of this hour, and that's an introduction and overview of the coronavirus. Uh, focus then on uh, the current variants along with transmissibility and how our current vaccines uh, and monoclonal antibody treatments um, are effective, along with summary and conclusions, of course, then the post-test as well as a question and answer period. So regarding uh, virology of SARS-CoV-2, uh, the uh, focus uh, for this, of course, uh, rapidly became those patients ill enough to require hospitalization. That's how this was first identified in China, and also the cases we intended to focus on early in the pandemic uh, in 2020 when it arrived here in North America. Uh, unfortunately, uh, through a variety of reasons, including just the uh, extraordinary transmissibility of this virus, as of early July of 2022, um, uh, over a half a billion people have been infected worldwide with the virus, uh, including uh, nearly 90 million in the United States. Uh, there have been over 6 million deaths worldwide and over a million deaths in the United States. But I, I have to say there's data uh, suggesting that the attributable mortality, uh, total people that have died, might be well over 3 million people if you actually look at uh, mortality within the United States. That's much higher over baseline over the past two years. Uh, transmission, I'm sure, as many of you know, is respiratory, both droplet and uh, we've come to know aerosolization. And in terms of immune responses, we do know that neutralizing antibodies can be uh, quite protective if they're uh, very uh, well uh, meshed in terms of targeting the existing variants. And cell-mediated immune responsive and so-called adaptive immunity 
with both um, cell-mediated and CD8 responses specifically uh, are important for clearing the virus, uh, virus uh, but are also those that uh, tend to be triggered uh, a few days into the infection as opposed to early innate immunity. The virus itself is an RNA virus uh, that <clears throat> has uh, components uh, of uh, structural proteins that you see identified here. We'll be focusing on the trimeric spike protein, uh, which has co-opted a normal uh, protein on cells, the ACE2 receptor, which uh, is well presented, especially in certain organs, such as the heart and lung. And this uh, protein will bind and then uh, provide a fusion uh, into the membrane entering the host cell. Uh, the receptor binding domain is the sort of critical part and probably the most conserved part of the spike protein, although as you'll see, there are a number of changes in this particular protein structure that have uh, uh, caused issues as time has gone along. So this critical uh, spike protein with its trimeric structure is the operative end of where neutralizing antibodies work. And antibodies that neutralize help prevent productive infection of cells or bind uh, to um, a virus uh, that uh, therefore uh, will render it unable to participate at that stage. Now, this trimeric protein has sort of an up and down structure, uh, open and closed. The idea is that um, when the virus is more exposed and open, there's greater potential for different antibodies to bind to the spike protein. When it's more in that closed or down perspective, um, it doesn't. And as this virus has acquired mutations, and again, the mutations are a natural consequence, especially of RNA viruses uh, that don't have uh, the greatest fidelity of its RNA polymerase. Most of those mutations um, uh, render non-productive uh, virus in aspects, but occasionally there are those that enhance the efficiency of the virus and evade immunity. And what's happened is those mutations, especially in the spike protein, um, have caused uh, the virus to develop spike proteins that are a little more in the down or closed position, but they also have facilitated greater binding to the ACE2 receptor, which is probably one of the reasons uh, it has increased its transmissibility greatly. So uh, monoclonal antibodies or antibodies for vaccines uh, that uh, provide neutralization or uh, uh, perhaps monoclonal antibody treatments um, uh, all uh, may behave the same way, and uh, the neutralization destroys the appropriate pre-fusion spike confirmation that's necessary for adequate binding. So it's really a steric hindrance issue, um, but uh, hopefully there's sufficient antibodies. And this is one of the reasons boosters have been important is an effort to try to increase the numbers of antibodies because especially when viruses present in very large numbers, it's helpful to have uh, vigorous amounts of neutralizing antibodies present to really uh, do the best job in preventing productive infection of cells. 
Now, uh, mutations, as we've already discussed, of course, affect the uh, genomic RNA of the virus. And uh, within the cytoplasm of the virus, RNA uh, will be uh, uh, transcribed. Uh, and indeed, there's a double-strand intermediary that uh, helps trigger a danger signal in the um, uh, host immune response uh, there. But as it's being made into a new single-strand RNA to make new virus, uh, these copying errors uh, just introduced by normal frequencies mutations, and, and therefore some of these uh, are the ones that have been contributing. Now, how these develop, um, one hypothesis is people with chronic infections because they're immune deficient have more opportunities uh, for this kind of situation to occur. But honestly, one of the reasons the pandemic has not been declared ended is the huge number of ongoing infections without respect to seasonality. And just because we have millions of infections on any given day, many of them now no longer reported, um, the chances of these mutations occurring are very high. So I think we'll see continued evolution of the coronavirus um, that is important. And we'll get to some of those definitions uh, as to uh, why uh, variants that continue to form, uh, in, uh, develop and then uh, become prominent meaning that it's very hard to end the pandemic until the total number of worldwide infections is significantly reduced. Now, uh, the ancestral strain um, of which the uh, vaccine is based uh, was uh, the so-called uh, strain that had a D um, uh, uh, presence of an, uh, uh, at uh, a position 614 in the spike protein. And uh, within short order, if you think if the uh, COVID illness uh, was discovered in uh, December, but the virus isolated in January, and, and maybe this illness existed for two or three months, perhaps a little bit longer. Of course, this is all conjecture. Um, uh, G614 uh, was identified, um, uh, and it's not uh, just so it's clear, in February of 20, not that's not February of 22, but February of 20, um, became identified, then became predominant by the spring worldwide. And uh, this polymorphism change uh, led to higher viral carriage in the respiratory tract and also enhanced uh, the binding to the ACE2 receptor, which is a common theme with each progressive mutation. And therefore, you had more transmission uh, compared to the ancestral strain. So as we head into uh, variants of concern, uh, interestingly, these have been occurring in faster and faster transitions uh, compared to uh, earlier in the pandemic. Um, and uh, 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 the designation was developed by the WHO um, and we'll get to the definitions later on. Uh, but importantly, both the WHO and the United States Centers for Disease Control um, will uh, outline what they view as current variants of concern and also uh, at least genomic sur surveillance uh, to try to keep a handle on what's happening 
in communities uh, across the United States, but also other countries have really been at the forefront of this, such as the United Kingdom and others. So uh, our current Omicron variant, um, uh, which uh, uh, was identified in November of 2021 in South Africa, was really interesting uh, because it had over 30 new mutations spike protein. This was not just some evolution from the prior predominant variant of concern, Delta. This was a wholesale shift. And uh, we'll see why in a moment. Uh, but as of early July of this year, that's 2022, these Omicron subvariants sub are now uh, really 100% responsible for COVID variants in the United States. And we see no evidence of Delta, Alpha, or some of the earlier variants of concern that had been so troublesome uh, and causing uh, vast amounts of patient illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. So Omicron has even higher replication rate than earlier variants such as Delta. And uh, with clearly higher uh, household attack rates um, uh, that uh, have been outlined in a variety of uh, countries, but uh, perhaps first reported by the United Kingdom, where in Europe we uh, tend to inherit the variants that seem to occur in Europe uh, four to eight weeks afterwards, and that's certainly uh, been the pace throughout this pandemic. Um, and uh, another study uh, from the U.S. suggested the secondary attack rates have climbed to as high as 53%. And of course, this is um, uh, 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 in a setting where there's a fair amount of pre-existing immunity and immunizations. So this is the latest snapshot as of July 2nd, 2022, of the genomic surveillance, but the caveats uh, now exists that um, with home antigen testing, many uh, infections are not being reported or people are not even seeking a diagnosis, uh, especially for mild disease. So I'm not sure we have a complete picture. But what these colors uh, tell us are the darker purples uh, representing the uh, earliest Omicron variants, subvariants. Um, uh, I've nearly vanished uh, by May. And uh, then we were dealing with BA2.12.1. Uh, but now uh, the green bar, uh, that's representing BA5 and BA4, which are very closely related, now account for the predominant uh, variants that have been sequenced at all the uh, Sentinel sites that uh, the CDC works with, which are a number of academic medical centers and state labs. But you can see this uh, has been occurring in just a matter of weeks, um, and this is very fast moving. Um, what we know from observational data, though, is that although there's increased transmissibility, which is why we're seeing these uh, changes in the subvariants occur faster and faster. Um, despite this increased transmissibility and attack rates, the risk of severe disease seems to be lower, so we have fewer people in the hospital and certainly fewer deaths, with now averaging about 400 deaths a day being reported 
in the United States as opposed to the thousands that we saw in the earliest phases of uh, Omicron. And this may reflect truly uh, that so many people got Omicron earlier this winter um, that they have some immunity, whether they've been, uh, uh, even if they were not immunized. But the other thing that's important to know is that if you had uh, uh, Omicron in December and January with BA1 and something along those lines, uh, that you're not getting great protective immunity against four and five. And we've seen people in as little as 30 or 45 days after getting documented Omicron, after getting do documented early Omicron infection, get a uh, subvariant um, uh, such as BA4 or 5 that has been proven by differences in sequencing. So um, protective immunity um, from any infection um, has sort of been declining as this virus uh, gains uh, traction and additional mutations to evade existing immunity. So the decreased severity certainly has been um, first reported in South Africa, where, of course, the Omicron wave first occurred. And you can see compared to Delta and earlier variants that the amount of people landing in the ICU uh, or dying is uh, markedly less. Still uh, above what we would see with seasonal influenza, which I think is very important to put into some context. Uh, but I'm certain all of you who are critical care physicians and working in ICUs or um, uh, intermediate level units um, have certainly seen fewer numbers uh, as uh, we've moved to spring and summer here in North America. As I've hinted at earlier, protection against Omicron, if you've had prior SARS-CoV-2 infection, has been less. Um, and uh, this is as the virus has uh, evolved, especially with uh, changes in the spike protein that has allowed it to evade pre-existing immunity. Now, the pre-existing immunity, I think, still gives you, or affords you, I should say, uh, a protection against severe disease and death. Of course, it's not universal in that regard, and certainly if people have uh, immune deficiencies of some nature or taking medications that prevent uh, full uh, immune responses and that uh, degree of protection from severe illness is less. Uh, but this is still quite important why we're still recommending uh, vaccines and boosters uh, in people, especially as time goes on, as immunity to the coronavirus does indeed wane. Uh, but importantly, if you have had COVID in the past and relying on that uh, to help uh, you evade uh, new infections, then you can count on that less and less over time. Now, for the Omicron variant, um, uh, um, you know, we discussed the vaccine issues here. Uh, specifically, if we look at the uh, Pfizer vaccine against Omicron in South uh, America, I'm sorry, South Africa, uh, the Delta surge, um, where it still behaved very well um, there uh, in terms of vaccine efficacy, that's preventing uh, both infection, but here just uh, protecting against hospitalization certainly was less, still substantial 
against the Omicron variant, but uh, definitely less than was seen uh, with Delta, and this no doubt reflects uh, some of those evolutionary changes in the spike protein. Um, now, um, this is, uh, again, just uh, with the Pfizer vaccine, which was used in South Africa, um, should know that uh, a large number of people also got the Janssen uh, vaccine in South Africa, but this is just reflecting uh, those that got the mRNA vaccine. And then um, from some U.S. data, uh, you can see that uh, at least here in North America, and again, our populations are different. If you look at hospitalization protection, it looks better than we see in South Africa. Um, and it may be because people have gotten an initial, uh, a third booster here, much more commonly than we, uh, that than was uh, uh, done in South Africa. Uh, and uh, still seeking, you know, medical visits perhaps a little more frequently, but still is holding up quite well. And I, I've always told patients that uh, being fully um, up to date, which is the CDC parlance, um, uh, that getting two boosters if you qualify, if you're over the age of 50, is what I urge. It's what I've done. I had uh, COVID-19 myself uh, the same day as Tony Fauci acquired it. Um, I had uh, a second booster. Uh, I'm 60, have some other health problems, but uh, didn't land in the hospital uh, at all and just felt like I had a, a moderate flu-like syndrome, certainly knocked out for a couple days from going to work, but um, <clears throat> uh, nothing severe. So. Um, uh, I do encourage uh, people to get those additional boosters because it does appear to correlate with preventing that severe illness that um, has really caused so much illness and death with hospitalizations in that second week of infection. Uh, now we're dealing with sublineages. Uh, we, after BA1, we saw a large amount of BA2. That was the orange bars in that um, U.S. Uh, genomic surveillance. Um, still uh, circulating to a degree here in early July. Um, this had even more mutations and really differed from BA1. BA1 uh, differs quite a bit from the BA2 variants and BA2 uh, has led to four and five, which we'll discuss shortly. And there is a, certainly a difference between the two. Um, but interestingly, the mutations in BA2 uh, seem that it's even more transmissible than BA1, um, uh, but there does not appear to be marked differences in um, uh, virulence or so-called pathogenicity. And it looks like uh, the vaccine responses that we're currently using appear to be relatively equivalent. Um, but uh, reinfections can occur. So BA2 was different enough that even people that had uh, earlier Omicron infection, as we've mentioned, um, uh, have been infected in short order again. Uh, but certainly unimmunized people are those most susceptible. Uh, this gives you an idea where certainly um, in the first part of the Omicron uh, uh, era, uh, we had uh, BA1, uh, 2, and 3. Uh, we now have 4 and 5. But if you look at those, there's a fair amount of overlap. 
but it does give you a, a flavor that each of these, and the reason these sublineages are identified separately is there are some significant mutational uh, differences uh, amongst each of these on the Venn diagram. Uh, this is uh, from a website that I look uh, frequently provided by the NIH that uh, catalogs uh, available uh, studies, uh, in vitro studies that look at neutralizing activity of monoclonals. The site also um, has sera from uh, clinical trials and vaccine-induced uh, immunity as well as antivirals. But uh, importantly, if we're just looking at uh, antibody-based treatments, unfortunately, we only have two currently uh, in use under FDA emergency use authorization. And uh, what you can see here with the dark gray dots are that uh, if you look at the monoclonal bevtilavimab, the bottom green arrow pointing there, um, it compared to um, uh, reference strains, had very little change in neutralizing activity, still quite active against BA4 and BA5, which is what all these dark gray dots represent. However, um, if you uh, look to the top green arrow, Evushel, the trade name, that's the combination that you see below under the yellow highlight, Silgavimab and Tixagivimab, um, does have maybe a 10 to 30-ish fold reduction in neutralizing activity. And that's uh, perhaps based on the fact that Tixagivimab really has little apparent activity against 4 and 5. So you're really left with just the Silgavimab. So uh, whether this is sufficient to prevent uh, breakthrough infections in those immunodeficient patients that have uh, received uh, the monoclonal antibody combination for pre-exposure prophylaxis, I think we will soon learn, certainly there are breakthroughs even earlier when it had good activity against earlier variant, Omicron variants. Um, however, uh, um, it's still under use at the moment, and um, uh, we don't really have any other products available at the moment. As you can see here, amongst all of the uh, monoclonal antibodies, um, there really isn't any that have the activity of bevtilavimab. So the Omicron sublineage BA2 um, really rendered um, uh, pre-existing uh, monoclonals uh, that have been used quite regularly, the, uh, included citrovimab, um, no longer uh, effective. Uh, and uh, once Omicron hit uh, uh, in December, um, we knew that casarumab and divimab, bamlanivimab and etisivimab uh, really did not have a sufficient activity, so those EUAs were revoked. Um, now, uh, I'd like to just um, go back a little bit to the summer of uh, 2021 when the Delta variant, which first was identified in India, uh, became prevalent quickly uh, in the United States through the summer and fall of 2021. 
Um, and uh, that virus, which really uh, wrecked havoc, uh, not only uh, here in the U.S., but in many other countries, uh, including India, which had largely escaped significant uh, impact of the pandemic to that point, um, uh, has uh, many more mutations in Omicron. I think you get the sense um, of the uh, changes in this trimeric spike protein that's substantially more. Um, now, as the note says here, it doesn't mean that Omicron's more dangerous, uh, but it did lead to increased transmissibility, as we've discussed. If we look at r naught, and this is a so-called uh, reproduction number, that is the number of, if you have an infected individual, um, how many people might they go on to infect if they're not isolating and so on. And you have a number of factors here which are estimates. And you can see, if you look at the bottom, uh, the ancestral strain uh, had an r naught that was perhaps two to four, so maybe uh, three, 2.5. Um, alpha had a higher uh, R naught, delta, and then you have uh, BA2. Not reflected on this graph is data from South Africa where estimates for BA4 and BA5, the current predominant subvariants in the United States, had an R naught of uh, 18.6, which places it squarely as infectious as measles, which is. Uh, really one of the most uh, contagious viruses that we've known for years, which is why we've been so concerned about maintaining uh, vaccine-induced immunity to prevent outbreaks in the United States, such as the large one that occurred in Disneyland in California in 2014. So this certainly is worrisome, uh, and I think one of the reasons why many of you have had family, friends, perhaps yourself, uh, who have escaped uh, COVID-19 for over two years uh, now um, uh, with this illness uh, despite uh, immunization. Part of the reason it's hard to anticipate uh, what might happen uh, down the road, the uh, future casting for what will happen, the pandemic is so fraught with issues, is that there's no natural evolution uh, of these pathogens. And as you can see, you know, it's not as though alpha uh, led to delta. In fact, they're widely separated. It's not as though alpha, a delta led to Omicron, for example. Now, what you have seen is that the subvariants from Omicron, originally identified, um, have had some evolution. So you see uh, that led to BA2 and then to four, five, as well as two, 12, one. These last three are the ones that are now circulating in the US. Um, and this is because there's really not enough distinguishing features uh, in these latest to be called uh, a separate variant of concern, but uh, rather subvariants. Now, the WHO has uh, developed a variety of designations in the past, um, uh, I'm sorry, at the start of the pandemic to try to keep track of these variants. And uh, 
I'm not going to go through all of their categories, uh, but variants being monitored is something that you might see when you look at the WHO site or others. And this just means that um, uh, there are variants that uh, appear to have been, been described by the genomic surveillance. They might have some mutations that make virologists concerned. But we've seen similar variants that are being monitored never really pan out. Uh, uh, some people have even called them scariants uh, 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 because um, early on a lot of the newspapers focused on these and so on, uh, but they never really quite amounted to anything. So this is something I think more for public health officials, virologists, and infectious disease people to look at, but it is a category um, uh, that is um, uh, being monitored under the pandemic. It's the variants of concern um, that uh, uh, really have caused uh, uh, the health problems in the pandemic largely. And the WHO has this working definition, um, and this means that there's some increase in transmissi transmissibility or detrimental change um, in the uh, way the infection is spread. Uh, or increased virulence or change in disease presentation, or um, that uh, social measures and mitigation measures or vaccines or therapeutics uh, have a marked decrease in their effectiveness. At the moment, there's only one variant of concern that's Omicron, and we'll deal with the moment about so-called subvariants. Um, but uh, this was first identified in November, um, and you see some of the key uh, mutations that are being monitored that uh, have accounted for this as being a separate variant of concern compared to earlier variants. Previous variants of concern, um, once the WHO uh, adopted uh, this set of labels, include alpha, beta, gamma, which had a short run, and epsilon. Where we are now largely is variants of concern with sublineages under monitoring the uh, rather awkward Voclum. Uh, and uh, this is busy because there are a lot of them, and it's not just BA4 and 5 and 2.12.1, but there are four others. And these remain in this certain category, which is a new category. Uh, uh, but are being tracked as all Omicron unless one of these variants or a subsequent future variant seems to behave markedly different and would fit more of the criteria outlined in the working definition for variants of concern. Some of the points that I think are important uh, and have been largely learned over time is that each of these subsequent variants have become more transmissible. There are not as increased, and this is despite a fair amount of um, acquired immunity, uh, either through vaccines or infection. However, probably the most um, pathogenic of the viruses was Delta. And since Delta, uh, Omicron certainly has caused less severe disease, but as the tree showed, it's hard to predict where the next variant will come. We hope 
it will lessen in severity over time, but there's no guarantee, and that was the case with Delta. The BA5 and, to a lesser degree, BA4 are now the predominant variants circulating in the United States, which are highly transmissible, but again, uh, have not yet accounted for a significant increase in disease severity, but still are hospitalizing more people, resulting in more deaths uh, than we have uh, seen uh, with seasonal influenza. In fact, for what it's worth, projections uh, presented recently to the FDA have suggested uh, that anywhere from 95,000 to 211 thousand, hundred thousand uh, 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 deaths may occur uh, due to uh, these variants and whatever future variants will hold between March of 2022 and March of 2023. So over one year, still far more deaths than might be anticipated from seasonal influenza. And that's anticipating that we may have a novel variant uh, come this respiratory season in the fall. And there is little doubt in my mind, given the extensive number of infections still occurring by the millions, that variants will continue to um, uh, evolve and uh, work to evade existing uh, immunity uh, and also monoclonal antibody treatments. Uh, uh, I hope this isn't the case. Uh, but means that um, the importance of supportive care if people do land in the ICU and also engagement of antiviral strategies uh, that are more directly acting, such as remdesivir or earlier treatment uh, with nermtrelivir and ritonavir will be important. I truly thank you for listening to this program. Uh, we will now uh, follow with a post-test uh, and uh, requirements for uh, getting your CME uh, certifications. I thank you so much for listening, and please tune in to the other two components of this webinar series. This activity was brought to you by AKH Incorporated, advancing knowledge in healthcare and American thoracic society and supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to ReachMD.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.